What if you could simply trust all information on the internet? My name is Sebastian and I'm on a mission to build a trusted web for all of us on planet Earth. An internet where my parents, possibly my future kids and my own generation can find truth and feel safe. Because to save the world, we need to fix the internet. In the Trusted Web podcast, I embark on a journey with you, my listener, and thought leaders to explore what needs to get done. With this special thing called blockchain timestamps, all content you consume will be transparent and accountable. Welcome to the new default on the internet. Thank you for being part of this journey and let's build the Trusted Web together. In this episode, I'm joined by Justin McBrayer, philosopher, teacher, speaker, and writer. Uh, Justin McBrayer likes to think about important human questions that can't be answered by the methods of science. He joined Fort Lewis College in 2008 already, where he is a philosophy professor today. Much of his work focuses on helping ordinary individuals and political bodies to think consistently and carefully about problems they encounter, the values they embrace, and the evidence they've gathered. Your students, uh, Jason, love you, is what I learned while researching you. And last year, uh, or actually the copyright is this year, you've published a book, Beyond Fake News and Finding the Truth in a World of Misinformation. Justin, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Pleasure to talk with you. To set the context, what's the state of fake news today? There's probably more fake news out there today than at any point in time in human history. Part of this is because it's easy to produce fake information. Think of what we can do uh, with Photoshop or think of what we can do with video manipulation software. It's just really easy to create fake stories. And then furthermore, it's really easy to spread fake stories. So even in the past, if you could create misinformation, it took a lot of work or a lot of money to spread that misinformation around. Well, not anymore. You can sit in an airplane terminal and you can create misinformation with your smartphone and you can circulate it around the world with a push of a button. It's easier than ever. And you're obviously working with the topic for a long time. What made you decide to write a book about this topic? Well, I'm a philosopher by trade. And part of my work in philosophy is in a field called epistemology, which is the study of reasons and knowledge and belief and that sort of thing. So I've been interested in theoretical questions about how we know and what we know for a long time. And after the 2016 Trump election, it just became obvious to many people the world over that misinformation and perhaps worse disinformation was a force to be reckoned with. And so I started using my theoretical training as a philosopher to think about the role that misinformation plays in our lives. And when I went back and looked at kind of the run-up to the 2016 election here in the U.S., I found out that I had been duped by fake news. Uh, I found out that I read a story that I really liked and pushed my buttons and I circulated it with friends and I went back and checked it out and turned out it was a fake news story and I had fallen for it. So I think, you know, if I'm falling for fake news, you know, that means everybody probably is. Um, where is this coming from? What can we do about it? How can we do better? That was sort of the impetus to get me thinking about fake news. 
yeah, you have the Ipsos research on the trust in the internet in 2019 already. There was at least this was the European number. 86% of all Europeans have fallen for fake news as uh, that were only the ones who knew it from themselves. Yeah, it's shocking. And so this is not a, it's not a problem that people don't recognize. Uh, I think it was the, the, the Pew Research Center did some research where they asked citizens both in Western Europe and, and the States and Canada and Australia to rank priorities, things that they were concerned about when it comes to uh, national security or national well-being. And as you might imagine, terrorism was close to the top of the list, but fake news was also really close to the top of the list in places like the United Kingdom, uh, Brazil, the United States, and so forth. So a lot of people recognize that fake news has the potential to damage not just our lives, but our, our social fabric and our political fabric. So people are concerned about this. And uh, I recently saw you, you wrote an article why, uh, why fact-checking fails. And was that one of the things that was most surprisingly for you? Maybe you can un unpack a bit what was in the article. And but the question would be, what surprised you the most over the last years on the topic of fake news? I guess what surprised me the most was that this is a ubiquitous problem. I think sometimes we read the news and we think that fake news is a problem for some small sector of, of, of society and conveniently a sector that doesn't affect me. So we think this is a problem for people who are on the far uh, right wing fringes, you know, the kind of people that, that mobbed the US Capitol. But it turns out that's not true. Um, people fall for fake news across the religious spectrum, across the political spectrum. It's not this small isolated problem. It's a problem for any human being who's plugged into the internet or who's plugged into technology the way we are in the 21st century. And that was really surprising to me because as I read stories in, in, in mainstay newspapers and when I was reading kind of the initial research, it, it seemed to me that this was just a problem of the fringes, the political fringes, the health nut fringes or whatever. And it turns out it's not. The problem is everywhere. And that was disturbing, but surprising. The fact-checking? Could, could you impact that? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to talk about that. So uh, the standard solution, when people recognize that there's a kind of fake news problem, the standard solution is to get them better information. And the thought is, as long as we can get people better information, people won't fall for fake news, people won't spread fake news, people won't act you know, act on fake news. And in my view, the standard solution is at least naive. It is true that if we can get people better information, that will help some people to do better. But it's simply not true that everyone wants to do better or, or to put it a different way, even people who want to do better, sometimes they have higher motives or higher goals that then outweigh this goal of believing better. So I don't think it's simply a matter of getting people good information. There are going to be a lot of believers out there, a lot of actors out there who are going to believe the way they want to, regardless of whether they have you know, that kind of information. So in fact, Sebastian, if you're open to a little, a little pushback, this is one of the, the ways in which blockchain technology or the kind of timestamp technology that you're advocating for and you're really interested in isn't going to be a panacea. It might get us some of the way to a more trustworthy net, but yeah. it's, I, I don't think it's going to get us all the way there because even if we could assure that information is reliable, there are going to be a bunch of actors that just don't care. You know, they're going to circulate the political news story that makes them 
angry or upset or whatever, regardless of whether it's been verified in that kind of way. There's a lot to unpack there. And uh, what we aim to do is in an open source way, bring transparency a, and accountability to all information that matters. Because the discussion on if something is true or not, or if there's truth in information, that's a hard one. What the blockchain technology can do and what it was actually invented for exactly 30 years ago was timestamping information, proving integrity and not integrity in truth, but integrity in has there been tampered with. Yeah, good. It's not a panacea, but it's, it's, it's an infrastructure for, uh, that's how we like to think about it. Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right about that and the role that it plays. And from a philosopher's standpoint, let me just flag why that's so important now. I guess I want to say in the old days, pieces of evidence sort of stood for themselves. If you had a photograph of a politician doing something, that photograph spoke for itself. If you had some medical report saying, you know, that scientist had run a particular kind of study and found, that stood for itself. So it's almost as if, as if the evidence was enough. The problem is that nowadays, given technology, the evidence doesn't stand by itself. You need to know where it came from because it's so easy to be manipulated. And so there, I think you're exactly right. The blockchain timestamp technology isn't the evidence itself. It's the protection between the evidence and its initial source. And then at one point in time, that wasn't so important. But now that we can easily fake things, it's becoming crucial. To take it one step further, one of the things we're advocating with search engines and social media, for example, is the more with search specific is the more transparency. So for example, when you choose to show revisions, the higher information should be able to rank, the more accountability you take. So if you put your government reputation on the line, information can spread further than when you don't. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's a great suggestion. So this raises the broader problem of how it is that you integrate blockchain technology into the internet. So suppose it's true that this kind of timestamp technology does preserve the integrity between the source and the evidence that you might be reading or watching or viewing or whatever. The question then is, how do you get other people to adopt this? How do you get people to start using timestamps and to rely on them or whatever? You just gave a particular suggestion for how we might move in that direction. You might get search engines, say Google, to prioritize uh, findings that deploy this kind of technology. Now, here's the really tricky part. How is it that you incentivize Google or some other search engine to do this? They're companies that are after profits. If it turns out that it's not profitable to prioritize blockchain because people don't care, they wanna get results that make them happy or outraged or whatever, there's, that's, I think, where the rubber meets the road. There's a really interesting problem on how you incentivize people to do that. So, yeah, what we say there is that for the first 80% in search, it matters to them to serve the highest quality result to their users. So there was always a question, oh, if I make a mobile-ready website, does it rank higher in the search engine? Of course it does, as it's a better user experience. Then there was HTTP, this website is protected or it's unsafe when there's no uh, secured connection. It's a higher quality result when it's protected. And we see it in the same way. Or the, the question 
is, hey, is a timestamped and therefore transparent and possibly accountable result, is it a higher quality result? Most would say, Yes, if it's in an open source way, but then you have what you uh, say, hey, it's it's in a way, the, the last 20% is, it's, it's eating in their profits. So there's a big role, what we think, firstly, the roadmap is this. Firstly, with small search engines, we make proof of concepts. We have the first search engines which say, okay, we're gonna implement this. Then with the policy makers, you can say, hey, it's working well in small search engines. Now let's see if we can enforce is a hard word, but let's see if we can make it work with the bigger. So big tech won't solve this uh, on their own. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I do think we're running into this problem where fake news is profitable. And as long as we're working in a free market system, we need to appreciate that fact and we need to do what we can to make it less profitable while still operating within the free market. Because again, Google tailors, I'm just going to pick on Google because they're the giant in the room. Google tailors search results based on who's searching. When you search for something in the Netherlands, you'll get very different results than when I search in Colorado in the US. Um, and so this point, well, Google, other things being equal, Google is going to be better served by putting higher quality results higher up in the rankings. Again, it's not necessarily true. When a climate change denier in a very conservative state in the United States does a search um, from her home IP address, that person is going to get very different results than when I search for climate change information. And it's not that both of us are going to be getting equally good information. In the case of climate change, Someone who endorses climate change is going to be getting pretty good information because that's what most scientists say. Someone who's a radical denier is going to be getting, in terms of truth, low quality information, but it serves Google's purposes to deliver that up. And that's the wall I think you're running up against. And what solutions do you think could be made in place to, to solve the problem of fake news? Is there a roadmap that you have in mind? I, I guess I don't think, first it depends on what you mean by solve the problem. So you might, by solve the problem, you might be saying something like, what do we do to be better believers to make sure that we don't fall for that's solving, solving the problem is, even though it's out there, I'm not going to fall for it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that you, if that's what you mean by solve, there's a lot of things you can do. I'll just mention two. One, we could get really clear about what it is that we as humans are good at figuring out on our own and not in the book i call these big and little questions we could we could come to naturally see that some questions are the kind of things that we can just easily trust others on and some are not and when we read something that's a big question we should know to look for more evidence so that's one thing we can do instead of just taking all questions as being on a par we should realize that humans are really good at figuring some things out and not good at figuring other things out and we should adjust our evidential expectations accordingly the second thing we can do is we can know more about our own psychological blind spots. Humans were not wired through evolution to be perfect truth calculators. We were wired to do the best that we could quickly in a, a dangerous and often fraught environment. And what that means is our minds work in ways that sometimes trick us. Psychologists call them heuristics or kind of mental shortcuts. And once we're aware of the kind of shortcuts that we take, you know, how framing a story can make us 
believe in particular ways, how we can be anchored by, uh, by information, how order matters to how we adjudicate a situation. Once we become aware of those blind spots, we can become much better believers. So if your question is, how do we solve this on the personal level to become better believers? I think we need to know more about our own minds and what we're capable of. On the other hand, if what you mean is solve this on a more social level, I think what we have to do is we have to figure out how to clean up our informational environment so that it's not so polluted. Right now, it's plausibly more polluted than it's ever been in human history. And we have to learn how to do better if we expect to curtail some of the effects of fake news on the, the social, political, or medical level. How do you see it evolve over the coming years? The book is called Beyond Fake News. It, it is. So this is a really, it, I was just talking about what humans could figure out easily and intuitively, what we can't. This is a big question because this is not up to Sebastian and Justin to, to, to sit down over coffee and try to figure out. This would be, a, a, think, of what, think of what the world looked like 20 years ago when the internet was just sort of coming into its own. It sort of looked like we were going to be in a renaissance of information. You know, before that, before that point, information was behind, almost behind the curtain. There were gatekeepers, publishers, governments, other people were sort of controlling the flow of information. And it's like the internet democratized information because now all of us could read for ourselves and produce and whatever. And things looked really promising 20 years ago that, that things would be getting better, not worse. And now here we are in this sea of misinformation. So I think it's very hard to predict how it will go from here. But I do want to say that the fact that fake news has had such really negative implications in individual people's lives, people taking bad medical advice or bad financial advice at the political level, the kind of thing that we've seen happen in democracies around the world, um, in, in, in family groups and that sort of thing, the, the fact that it's having really bad results and the fact that lots of people now recognize this in Western Europe and the United States and elsewhere, that makes me really hopeful. So I'm not sure what will happen, but I do know that you and I are having this conversation. People are aware of this in ways that they weren't in the past. And that makes me hopeful that we could curb it. Is there a clear advice you have for social media platforms, for search engines, for policymakers? No, I do think that it's, it's really tough because it's tough for the reason I pointed out earlier. As long as you're working in a free market, there's only so much a regulatory agency can do before it you know, goes too far um, you know, into the free market. But I do think what we ought to be looking for are ways in which profits and truth overlap. Maybe people don't always want the truth, but they often want the truth. Maybe we can find places where the government is not providing penalties, but the government is providing incentives. So if the government is underwriting technology in a particular sector, or if the government is underwriting a news agency, or if the government is somehow providing some kind of subsidy to certain sectors, if it is, then it seems like it's within the government's purview to say, hey, look, if we're going to sponsor this, we expect you to use blockchain technology or we expect you to prioritize results. You don't have to do that and we'll pull our support. But as long as we're funding, I think governments are in the position to incentivize the production and consumption of truth. Just in the way, at least in the United States, the government 
incentivizes the production and sale of green technology. For example, electronic cars. If you buy an electric car in the US, the United States government will give you a rebate. That's not forcing people to use electric cars, but it is incentivizing them to move in the right direction. And it seems to me we ought to be able to find ways to do that in the free market when it comes to fake news. And lastly, to close it off, when we were chatting before this conversation, you told me about a researcher currently in on demographics and fake news. Is there some insights you can share on that? Yeah, so it turns out, I told you earlier that fake news is ubiquitous, it's everywhere. But it turns out that certain populations, when you divide populations up by, by demographics, certain populations suffer worse than others when it comes to fake news. And it, it comes at no, at no surprise maybe that those are the people on the fringe of socioeconomic society. So in the United States, um, black communities suffer from the effects of fake news in ways that white communities don't. They're more fragile. They're less likely to be, their voices are less likely to be taken seriously when they post reactions and that sort of thing on social media. So right now I'm working with a student who's really interested in fake news and where it came from, but sort of the intersection of that and what's called in philosophy, epistemic injustice. How it is that epistemic trust, trust in what someone else knows or believes or their reasons or their evidence, how that trust gets fragmented along demographic lines in ways that, that make no intellectual sense. Amazing. And uh, yeah, let's wrap it up here. People can, of course, uh, buy the book, the Beyond Fake News book. And where can they follow, for example, this research? Uh, is there a place where it will be published? I'm going to be publishing posts on my blog, on my website, as we work through it this spring. The book's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's written for a normal audience rather than an academic audience. So it's written for my friends and family who were coming to me say, what are we going to do about fake news? Have you read about this? What's going on here? So it's written for, you know, everyday interested people and not just for fellow academics. So my hope is that people will get it and, and decide for themselves what's going on with the fake news uh, epidemic and how they can contribute to a cure. Yeah, Justin, thanks so much. We will put your website in the show notes, of course. And uh, thanks for firstly, all the important work you do. And secondly, for joining the Trusted Web podcast. That was Peter McBriar, the author of Beyond Fake News. What a powerful insight. And uh, check out his website. The link is in the show notes for uh, yeah to follow all the important stuff he's working on. And lastly, I'd love to invite you to go to thetrustedweb.org slash podcast. There you'll find our reports on the state of misinformation as we surveyed thousands of participants from across the globe to better understand the impact misinformation has on their lives and how they view the problem. There are some incredible findings there that uh, at least it surprised me and all of us over here. So I'd love you to check out that report. And furthermore, you'll find the other episodes, the other guests, education, use cases, all for building a trusted web. It's all available on that website, of course, for free. thetrustedweb.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening and therefore being part of the trusted web journey. And let's build the trusted web together.